Hello, welcome to Reconstruction Calls. I'm your host, Spiritual Director Aaron Maines. Today I'm talking with my friend, Chris Terry. She's a minister of a New Thought community here in Dallas. Hang on the line for just a moment. Hey, Chris, thanks for doing this. Um, How are you today? I'm great, Aaron. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Hey, um, as a way to introduce yourself, um, why don't you just tell us a little bit about your typology? Any that you know about yourself, any that you use more than others? um, Just just help us know a little bit about you. Well, let's see. Here's a couple of... um... A couple of ones I found useful. The Myers my Myers Briggs typology is uh, ENFP, okay, uh, which is um, really loves a shiny object. <laughs> uh, no, loves, loves like, hey, we could do this thing. We can all do it together, and we can build yeah. something amazing. And if it, you know, but you only have a, like a short window because then <laughs> I'm on to the next thing. Like, wow, look at that. Have you yeah. thought about that? So that's- like yeah. extroverted in- intuition, right? Yes. And then, um, what? How does it work? Then you're the opposite is like introverted feeling, and the P is feeling and perceiving, perceiving. right? Perceiving, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's interesting. So you uh, move quickly, then, like place to place, uh, object to object. Well, that is true of me personally. I don't know if that's relevant. I mean, if that is a correlate of the Myers-Briggs typology, but uh, my other type is, uh, you know, um, 54-year-old adult managing 50 years old, 50 years of ADD (laughs) type. Which and but no, it's just that I I really can see I've a an ENFP is has a visionary sense of something and really wants to motivate people to work towards some common great goal or something. Mm-hmm. Sure. But yeah. we, we ENFPs as a rule, uh, lose interest in things because they're ready to get on with the next thing. So we're great starters. <laughs> we, we're great conceptualizers, but we are not your day-to-day folk. Okay. <laughs> All right. Anything else? Other type Yeah, there's another one called Emergenetics, which uh, um, is about thinking styles and behavioral attributes. And she's used in corporate settings a lot, but I actually got um, – exposed to it, um, doing, uh, church board leadership retreats. Uh, it was just one of the tools that one of our, uh, retreat facilitators used and, and you know, it's ended up being incredibly beneficial for me, mm. not necessarily because, well, partly what I've, partly because of what I've learned about myself, but also because of what I have forgiven myself for. Mm. So like, if you think that say spiritual looks a certain way, Mm-hmm. Like, let's say you're a meditator, meditation comes easy, or you do these things with discipline, all that kind of stuff. When you look at my typology, if, if that's, is this the goal, then I'm in the gutter. Mm. Um, so what I, what I've had to do is look at myself and, and say, no, this is how I define an active spirituality. And this is what practice looks like for me. Yeah. And, yeah. um, I can quit comparing myself to other people and coming up short. So what all does this emergenetics? I, I'm not very familiar with that. So what all does it, it sort of seek to measure? So it looks at thinking styles and it was uh, based on the, the research of a guy done back in the 50s, I think. And okay. then then there's also another similar typology called the Herman Brain Dominance Indicator. And I mentioned that because they're based on the same, I believe, set of initial uh, research findings. 
And it's that we all have way, not just what we think about, but how we think about things varies. Mm -hmm. So in this model, there are four ways of thinking about something. You can be conceptual. You can be a relational thinker. You can be a analytical thinker and you can be a, what I call structural thinker. It's like details. Okay. Um, and some of those things are what it calls your preferences and then other ones are not. And, mm-hmm. um, so I've learned a lot about why I struggle with some of the things that I do and why I'm incredibly gifted at the, the handful of things that I'm really gifted mm, at. Yeah. Yeah. Um, isn't it fun to like, uh, learn those things that you're incredibly gifted at and then sort of attempt to live into that? <laughs> yeah. I, I just to just to, to begin to own them. But of course, you know, the first thing is to quit comparing myself to other people and, and mm-hmm. coming up short because, you know, that's the death of, I think somebody said comparisons, the death of joy. And mm-hmm. I, I did a lot of joy killing. <laughs> Thanks for those. Uh, anything else or, or I'm the, a Libra, are those if that helps. A Libra. Okay. That's good. It's helpful. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> okay. Good to know. That's a great one. Well, are you ready to play a game? Oh Yeah. Because we're all in quarantine. Um, This game is called It's the End of the World as We Know It. Um, So these questions are all about the right way to deal with the end of the world. Here we go. Question one. Would you rather the aliens that make first contact be robotic or organic? Organic. I'm a very relational being and I I can relate to organic (laughs) things. Just, just, just less worried about the machines, uh, or, or, or more worried about the machines, less worried about the organic. Yeah. All right, I'll say that's a that's a correct answer. It um, is. <laughs> it's uh, your correct answers today are just based on what I think. So, okay, um, I was going to say, what's our metric? <laughs> Excellent, Aaron. Uh, okay, well, question. I often find myself in simpatico with you, so I'm probably going to do pretty well. Let's get on with it. Huh? All right, question two. Of it's the end of the world as we know it. Who has the better post-apocalyptic gear? People in the Hunger Games or people in Mad Max? Hunger Games. Mm, that's incorrect. Mad Max for sure. Especially okay, that well, one guy in the new Mad Max that he's um, he's like leaning out of that huge machine playing drums. He or he's got that um, big guitar that shoots fire. That's definitely better than anything Hunger Games ever had. So. Well, I actually one. haven't seen it, so I'll give myself a pass on this one. <laughs> okay. Question three. So you need to live on the move. Would you rather do this on a sailboat like Kevin Costner in Waterworld, or would you rather move vehicle to vehicle like everyone in Zombieland? Uh, sailboat. Um, Was that right gonna, or wrong? I'm going to say that is correct because I actually really like the movie Waterworld. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> All so right. I knew there was something odd about you. <laughs> All right. Bonus question. Uh-huh. Uh, what would your post-apocalyptic superpower be? Would you rather be able to dodge anything, no matter how fast it's moving, or be able to ask any three questions and have them answered accurately? Any three questions. Oh, that's a good one. That's correct. You win. Congratulations. Right. Your prize for winning is that you just get to keep on living. Thanks, man. <laughs> it's not the end of the world. Well, Chris, I wanted to have you on today just to talk about what I think is one of the more important, really, faith practices in the world. I've, I've often heard people say that the 12-step programs or the sort of AA or all the variants of that are 
um, really one of the great gifts of spirituality that America is giving really to the faith universe. And so I just wanted to talk to you today about um, getting sober and how that has affected your faith over a course of amount of time. And um, so so let's just start there. Um, can you just tell me about being sober, what that looks like, what that means for you, what that is, and, and sort of how that all works for you? Sure. I, I think it was the, the journey of sobriety begins when you... Well, when you admit you're powerless over whatever your substance, mm-hmm. person, place, and, or thing is, and mm-hmm. you know, and that it's made your life um, unmanageable, mm-hmm. and it's this be you know just the the point at which you you give up your relation that you're able to give up your relationship. That's the point at which you begin the journey of sobriety. And so, how long have you been sober? Uh, twenty two years. Wow. Prior to sobriety. Um, what role did faith play in your life? Somewhere between no role and um, me being a, a mocker of faith. Mm-hmm. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. So so let me give you like just a quick background on me. I, I grew up um, Catholic. My mom was from the Philippines. She, um, she was a cradle Catholic, lifelong Catholic, but she was her own version of Catholicism. Mm -hmm. You know, she wasn't going to have any of that papal infallibility or, you know, Mm -hmm. men this, Mm -hmm. men that. No, she didn't have any time for that. So she was her, but she was a faithful Catholic and my dad was non-participatory. But by the time I was, you know, 11, I was like, okay, none of this makes sense. This doesn't make any sense because you're telling me that God is love. And then you're telling me that this, uh, you know, all these rules and all this, and then he, he needs to kill some, what? Kill somebody? Mm-hmm, His son's mm-hmm. got to die. None of this makes sense to me. Right. So it did make sense for me. And then the final part with that was I had a lot of sexual, I experienced a lot of sexual abuse as a child. And so the other piece of that is if, th- if this God that you're describing actually exists in any way, shape or form, he don't want nothing to do with me. Mm-hmm. So screw him. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. So in the, the, pro- the process of getting sober for me was to um, find a way to say, the, you know, people told me the only thing you need to know about God is that there is one and you ain't it. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I was so furious with um, my upbringing and the way that it sort of uh, had woven itself together with the pain that I carried. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I had to really... Uh, when I, it took me six years to get sober. And when I finally got sober, a friend of mine said, look, you so smart. I don't know if you're going to live. And and she loved me and she was serious. Mm -hmm. Um, and something broke through. Um, so yeah, it's weird. Sobriety for me on the faith journey is saying, I always tell people this. Um, I said a prayer to something I didn't believe in for something (laughs) I didn't want and I got it and I love it. (laughs) that's great yeah that's great traditionally i think churches have been sort of the home of the the aa or or sort of the 12-step meetings like in the like i always you see it in the movies you know there's always like in the kind of shabby basement with bad coffee and low light (laughs) and a lot of ashtrays a lot of ashtrays (laughs) so i've been um, to those meetings (laughs) yeah but i also see you know churches doing sort of these celebrate recovery models in the sense of using the 12-step model to um, help people to engage with whatever it is they need to be in recovery of 
I think there's so many things that we're all, you know, and some on some level need to be in recovery of and, and admit that we need to be in recovery of some sort. What is it about just the, the sort of the overall model that um, makes it so successful? What would you say? There, I knew a speaker once that said magic dust gets on you. What it is, what it was for me or what I've come to understand is the steps are the busy work that happens while the group and God heal you. Mm. Wow. So I don't know why it's so successful. And there's lots of people out there which tell you how unsuccessful it really is. I mean, percentage wise. Right. Um, right. <clears throat> the way it is successful is that people absolutely have their lives changed. Yeah. Yeah. And you can, and it, at at that point, an N of one is a success. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah. yeah. So what I can tell you from where I'm at now is that those people see you whole. Mm. I mean, I've been in meetings, like we had this dude, he killed somebody accidentally. Mm-hmm. And like, I've been in meetings where, you know, like this dude was just, he's breaking down. I mean, he's just, you know, and he was a sort of a, a religious man as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so this in a fit or a blackout or whatever, he just killed somebody and, yeah. you know, sitting in this whole group of people and this guy is just like dumping this out. And then like four minutes later, people there's tears running down faces because some old guy has spoken up and out told the story of the guy that he accidentally (laughs) killed 16 or 18 years ago. You know what I mean? So there's like this, I don't know. There's this, like this, this process of forgiveness and nurturing and, and it's all done mostly with words and time, of course. Yeah. Um, But that's the magic dust of, of good recovery. So what I wanted to do today with you is walk through each step um, in my own, some of my own spiritual life. My, my spiritual director actually just brings, uh, not, not in a whole way, but um, we'll just here and there bring up, you know, that's, that's step four or uh, that's step seven or, or whatever it looks like. And so I just wanted to sort of walk through these and just talk through them. What, what each step means and how it creates a center of faith and, and, and a center of presence in, in each, during each step and in each life that it really affects. So I thought what we would do today is uh, just walk through the 12 steps. Um, step one is we admitted we were powerless over alcohol and that our lives had become unmanageable. Uh, yeah. So I guess the only thing I would say about this one, Aaron, for me is that... Um one of the cycles of active addiction in my mind is the telling oneself that this will be the last time. Right. So it's a, it's a huge hamster wheel of denial. And so what the first Mm -hmm. step does, I think actually, um, um, admitting we're powerless puts us into a new relationship with the substance. Right. So we're telling ourselves the truth for once because before it was Mm -hmm. like, yeah, okay. You know, I'm, I'm spinning as I try to go to bed or I wake up and like wondering where I've been that, that kind of stuff. And then I was like, God, I'll never do this again. And that will last till 10 o'clock the next morning. Or maybe, you Mm -hmm. know, if you're a binge drinker, you know, 10 days later, whatever it is. (laughs) So step one breaks the, like, is the acknowledgement that you um, don't have any control that you've tried or mm. that you just can't yeah. do it. You don't have it. Admitting, in, you know, yeah. In and of yourself, you cannot do it. 
And that powerlessness is a, is a new place to start because I think for all of us, we, no matter where we're at in life, we carry around some, some sort of power that we think we have, like whether that's our ego talking or whatever it is, we feel like, well, like you're saying, like I can stop, I can stop anytime. Um, you know, I can, I can do this on my own. And, and, and I, I'm not sure that we can, no matter what it is, I'm not sure that we can stop. Can I just tell you that one of the biggest, well, okay. So I have two things on powerlessness that I, you know, one is just good, good common sense wisdom, I guess. And that's that, um, you admit that you're powerless in step one. And then the second step is the beginning, the process of getting your power back. So Mm -hmm. it's a little bit, Mm. step one is like a bridge. You absolutely have to get it, but you can't live on it. Mm. Yeah. Wow. You know, any sort of reconstructing and, and transfiguring or, or, or however you want to talk about that, that principle, that idea of, of dealing with your power in a new way to restore your power but at the same time to say, uh, I will hold it so differently than I've ever held it before. Right. And it's a, it, it actually, for me, and this is just cause I have, you know, I tend to interpret things in a, either a psycho spiritual or a theological way at this point in my life. And, um, what I really saw for me was that it was a, um, I don't know, a process of getting right sized or in right relationship, mm-hmm. I guess. Right. Yeah. So, so the powerless thing, and then you start the second step, which is. I came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. So the, the way it was taught to me is that there are three parts and that I needed to address them in order. And so the first thing I needed to do was come. I just needed to come to Mm -hmm. meetings, come. Mm -hmm. And then eventually after I had done that for a while, then I would come to meetings, start to kind of wake up. Um, Mm. And then at some point I would come to believe. John Wesley um, introduced this idea of uh, both a, like a personal holiness and a social holiness. And so the idea is that we can't always carry both of those at the same time. And so um, oftentimes if we are lacking in personal holiness, the idea would be that you need to lean into your social holiness and then the vice versa would be true too. So at times we have too much personal holiness and and we're lacking in social holiness. We need to find balance in that. And so to me, when you're saying first, you just need to come. The thing that is striking to me is um, oftentimes like that step of I'm just going to make an effort even if it's for reasons unknown, I'm just going to continue to make an effort. And I think that there is sort of something magical in the midst of that. If, if it's, you know, the Holy Spirit or the universe or however you want to, you know, think about that without baggage. Um, I think that, that that effort is acknowledged by God. And, uh, and, and so it's in that seeking that we, that we find that power, that greater power. What does you have to show up to get the magic dust on you, Aaron? That's part of it. Yeah. Like, and the magic, <laughs> magic dust is really just get the sense that you can live another way, that it's possible, right? So it's mm. the magic dust mm. is hope, and yeah. um, <clears throat> and and it's you know I think every spiritual tradition, I don't know of any, literally worldwide and throughout history, 
they all gather, right? So there's a gathering or there's a mm-hmm. sangha or a meeting in someone's home that, that mm-hmm. you're sent to with a, a fish sign that points the way. Right. You go to, uh, you know, you go to temple, you go to synagogue. It just, mm-hmm. it's just, and, and there's even a, I guess you could call it a secular equivalent, you know, the salons of the 20s. And all of mm-hmm. it is like, let's gather together to explore meaning mm-hmm. without and within. Yeah, you would, you would almost say like yoga is similar to that soul cycle is similar to that. Like let's gather together um, and do something together to better ourselves. Well, it's just the fact that you meet with like-minded people or you get with, you know, whatever you want to call it, other believers, the body Catholic with a small C, mm-hmm. whatever that is. Cause that's the thing, you know, the, the center of gravity of any group will pull you up to it. Yeah. Right. In terms of what's possible for you, what you can achieve psychologically, psychospiritually, blah, blah, whatever. And, and so you go into, if you find the right room of Alcoholics Anonymous and you see yourself there and, and then you're there, then, um, you begin to see yourself anew because you see the way that people are looking at you and what's possible for you. And this is the highly relational part that is really, um, functionally speaking is a, is a function of the divine feminine as opposed to the masculine, right? Because mm-hmm. you're being swooped up. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, done right. The underlying gift of recovery groups is that you are brought to the bosom and healed. Mm-hmm. And that's separate from all the, the step work, the theology, the, the, you know, it, the debates, the 12 and 12, any of that kind of stuff. It's that's the, the sort of intersubjectivity that happens, I guess. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then the step work is, you know, what you're doing, the stuff yeah. you're doing. Yeah to make peace with your past and find a new way to engage your life day to day. So step three is a really big one. I think, Mm -hmm. I mean, I I think they're all big in their own way, but especially in terms of like reconstructing a a life of faith. Um, Step three is I've made a decision to turn our will and our lives, or we've made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God (laughs) as we understand, as we understand God. So that, that sounds like I, a whopper to you. Even, <laughs> it does because, um, because it back to the power thing. Um, that is, again, giving away my, I'm giving away my natural power to a supernatural power. And, and anytime that we do that, there's some sort of mystery involved. Um, what I love about how the 12 step programs word that is um, it's, you know, I know originally it was more like Christian based, but um, as they sort of develop them today, uh, what they're letting you respond to is the supernatural and, and letting you acknowledge that from where you are, from where you're coming from. But I think, um, you know, like like in, as a part of your story, I'm coming into this with 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 not even like a a really I would say like a, with a healthy view of God to say now I'm supposed to turn all that over to God you know, question mark. (laughs) So yeah, I feel like that's, um, I even think that people that have a long running and and healthy faith life that, uh, you know, a daily turning ourselves over to God is, is a real struggle. 
I know a lot of ministers and I know a number that are, that were in recovery when they went into ministry and my experience of them. And of course this may be completely subjective is that their ministries and their presence and their abilities, um, they're, they're something deeper, more grounded, uh, more humble, I guess, um, about, uh, about their presence and mine, I Mm -hmm. hope. Whereas, um, and it's because you got your ass kicked. That's the bottom mm-hmm. line. You yeah. have already had the life experience that has right-sized you. Mm. And perhaps in a deeper way that it makes you fit for service in a deeper way. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But it's it's yeah. real different. It's, you know, um, there's just a, a very different feel to me. Uh, yeah. And... Yeah, because you already know. It's like, oh, no, I've had my butt kicked. I am under no Mm -hmm. illusion that I'm omnipotent at all most of the time. Mm -hmm. So kind of like developmentally in some ways, having um, already been in recovery is a – I guess it's like like a developmental accelerant. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right? You know, for example, in my case, I, you know, I drank or used for a couple of decades. And so I was developmentally quite far behind. Um, mm-hmm. I just mm-hmm. wasn't negotiating those life stages, you know, just checked out. Yeah. Yeah. And so yeah. that first AA group also was the cradle in which all of that development began to get caught up. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, so the, so the made a decision to turn our will and our lives over the care of God as we understand God. There's a prayer that goes with the third step. I don't know if I could recall it, um, but what my sponsor told me again, because I was ornery and was going to die pretty soon, um, was no, the only thing you need to make a decision about is whether or not you're willing to do the next step. Mm, yeah. So let's talk about moral inventory. So make a searching and fearless moral inventory. Yeah. So, it's fearless is such a striking word, you know, for me, like make a fearless moral inventory. Right. Well, you got to think about it. Like alcoholics are not by nature different than people. They're just extreme versions of people. So um, the capacity for denial Mm. in an average person, multiply that exponentially. And now you have the the capacity for denial in an alcoholic and take an alcoholic that's in their cups, as they say, and you can do a whirlwind of damage because the only relationship in your life Mm. that matters is is alcohol and that's true if it's food or you know whatever else if you have those two things that the mental obsession and the physical compulsion then all you do is damage (laughs) Mm -hmm. um and so the fourth step is an opportunity to take a look and see the patterns that's really what it's about um it's mm-hmm. far less scary once you've done it. It becomes almost laughable because you what you see is one or two or three people into like who you have a resentment against and the pattern of like what your part is, because that's the focus. What's my part in all of this drama? Well, three people in, you're like, oh, there I am doing that thing again. You know, kind of mm-hmm. nothing, yeah. nothing yeah. new under the sun kind of yeah. deal. Mm hmm. So, yeah, so that's the searching and fearless moral inventory. And then the fifth step is you actually have to tell it to somebody. You can't um, yeah. say, okay, yeah. I wrote it all down. I'm good. No, you actually have to tell it to somebody. Yeah. So the fifth step, we've admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Exactly. Yeah. 
Yeah, so, so that is an active practice of it's a, in a sense a confession. You're, you need to go and make a confession. Yes, I would say that 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 that, that the, the the true and honorable purpose of confession is met in that fifth step. And because part of, yeah, because it, it does, it could, again, it does a magic thing. It's, it's witnessing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and it's not just witnessing, like, you know, I got to tell you publicly what I screwed up. It's I'm sitting here telling my worst to someone who will love me mm-hmm. no matter what they've yeah. probably done it, heard it, seen it or topped it kind of thing. So yeah, you get the benefit of that, that process. And the first time that you do that, it's when you move the, I always like to think of it, like it's when you're moving boulders, right? Mm -hmm. So you're doing this four step and this is one when you first cease your relationship with your substance or object or person or whatever. And, and so you're looking at, wow, everything that's come up until this moment, as we go on through the steps, we're going to repeat the pattern of inventory, but it's going to become daily. Step six. So we're, uh, we were entirely ready to have God remove all the defects of character. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> sometimes it's good to remember, Aaron, that these are a statement of perfect ideals. <laughs> so, you know, they're alive and uh, yeah, relative yeah. sometimes. Yeah. So because if you think about well, it. Well, I, I love, yeah, I love what you're saying about how it starts to become a daily practice as opposed to sort of these big, like sweeping um, moves. It, I think that uh, we could all uh, ask God daily to, <laughs> to remove our defects of character. <laughs> I certainly right. could use it. And then seven is um, humbly ask them to remove our shortcomings, which is basically right. they're the six, you know, six and seven are kind of, of a pair. Aaron, I think the third step prayer is, uh, I get this in the seven step prayer confused sometimes. So I think it's, um, the third step is God, I offer myself to you to build with me and do with me as you will relieve me of the bondage of self that I may better do thy will grant me strength as I go out from here to do your bidding. May I do your will always, amen, or something like that. And the seventh step is interesting in that it goes like my creator, I am now willing that you should have all of me, good and bad. Mm. And that's powerful because yeah. it's a, you know, yeah. there is that the recognition at some point, and, and this is in my memory and in my memory of watching other people. At some point in your journey, whether it's an Alcoholics Anonymous, Christianity, um, progressive Judaism, you know, whatever it is, there comes, there is that point where you realize that, A, you can't hide anything from God or your highest self or, you know, to whatever language you want to use. And right. that, um, that even the stuff that's screwed up about you. Mm-hmm. Is perfectly usable brick to build up yourself and other people. It really is. Is that that sort of acknowledgement of needing to build up yourself and other people move us to the, the eighth step, which is I mean, we've made a list of persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. 
Oh yeah. Well, um, yeah, this, these steps suck. I got to tell you. <laughs> no. So yeah, you, you go into the eight step and it's, it's, you know, it's, it's restitution basically. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, so you go and, you know, if you stole some money, you got to pay it back and you know, all this stuff, but then you got to mm-hmm. go say, Hey, what I did, what I did was wrong. Mm-hmm. And I see, you know, just some sort of amends, not an apology. You are making mm-hmm. an amends, right? Yeah. And so, yeah. Um, yeah, that that you come out of that. Eight is the list. Nine is the action. You come out of that again, having um, just, I don't know, like so. Eight as you make the list. Nine as you actually go do the amending. Yes, which you which you do with guidance. Okay. And only when you're ready. Cause you know, mm-hmm. oh, there's horror stories of amends gone wrong. You well, know? I can imagine too, you know, like if you, if that's so not only when you're ready, but when, you know, there, <laughs> certainly someone that you've wronged, maybe they're not ready to receive those amends. You know? Well, and so and, I, and, I can imagine yeah, some of that relationship dynamic happening too. Well, and here's the thing that the, you know, like anything else, the amends is never about the result. It's about, this is, this is the next right action. Right. Mm -hmm. So depending on how horrible you've been, you may, you know, you, you may have burned bridges that you will never get to, you know, repair. Yeah. But it's, it's the act of taking responsibility and cleaning up your mess. And I got to tell you, just from a surely animalistic perspective, sometimes the thought of having to make amends to someone is enough to um, help me keep my mouth shut. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because I don't, we aren't all in the, in a, in, you know, in a daily practice necessarily of making amends with people. And so I think if we were more in the practice of making amends, we potentially would keep our mouth shut a little more often. <laughs> well, and it's a rare thing, but I will tell you the amount of freedom that you get from saying, mm-hmm. you know, and again, it's you're, you're doing moving the big stuff through that the first part of the steps. And then, so let's talk about it within the context of the 10th and 11th and 12th steps, which we call the spiritual maintenance steps. So step 10 is uh, we continued to take personal inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Step 11, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. And then step 12, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all of our affairs. Those certainly are um, sort of the, can you you back up and talk about, um, let's see, the step that was, First, I have to come, and then I have to sort of, like, I just have to come to the meetings, and then come, I have come to, to come to believe. Yeah, yeah, and mm-hmm. so do the, the. It seems to me the steps work a little like that. <laughs> Absolutely, they do. There is this um, eloquence bit built into them that I don't think Bill and Bob knew. In the idea of sort of second half of life living, you're able to. You know, I think second half of life people at some point take inventory. It, we at least have lived enough life that we have an inventory to take. And so uh, in the mix of that, um, you know, we've gone and screwed it up enough that we 
um, we can turn and say, I don't want to do that anymore. And so I can take an inventory. And, and I think there is something that that's the that's the coming to part. Right. Um, you know, in like the parable of the um, the son that leaves home, uh, he's in the he's in the the hog pen, you know, trying to get the corn from the hog sort of thing. That's his like come to moment. Like, I don't have to be this. I don't have to do this. This is not I don't I don't have to continue this life as it is from here on out. And so I can I can head right. in a different direction. Right. So I think that is what that's there's an invitation, certainly in these steps to, to come to to come to a new a new idea of myself and to say, I don't have to continue here. I can move forward in a different direction. And then I think that's where like the come to believe part has its power yeah I, th I think you're right and i think that again that like that where we're trying to get to is th this again that like living in steps 10 11 and 12 which are you know a just a powerfully spiritual way to live mm -hmm. that keeps the presence of the holy alive mm. see when you yeah. pay attention that way at the end of the day, you sit or at the end of a situation you royally screwed up or at the end of a decade of your life or a season of your life or a marriage or, you know, whatever it is. When we have the capacity to sit and look unflinchingly at our behaviors, but compassionately at the totality of who we've been and what we've been and, you know, all that, then... Um, that it, it's that fruitful time, the inwardness that comes to that or from that is, is the, the gift of living that way. Yeah. You know, and then, you know, the 11 steps specifically addresses tools, you know, so, okay, if I'm going to live a spiritual life, what does that mean? Well, according to Bob and Bill, it means prayer and meditation. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's fine. And depending on what a person's tradition is, and their own spiritual altitude, really, then the practices, like, for example, my beloved's spiritual practice is yoga. Mm -hmm. You want to see a crazy world? <laughs> Pull her from that practice because mm -hmm. that's a yeah. maintenance practice for her, right? So, mm -hmm. so from whatever tradition, whatever your stuff, but specifically prayer and meditation, and then the idea that uh, nothing is kept. The the 12th step is that you will give freely of what you have received here. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I had a sponsor, the best and most loving and scariest, honestly, sponsor I ever had. <laughs> um, she got real mad at me over something that she had every right to get real mad at me over. And she said, damn it, don't you know? what you're doing, you're not doing what you're doing. You're only doing what you're doing while you're doing what, is, what you're doing, which is to practice these principles in all your affairs. Mm. Right. So it's this mouthful. It's like, what are you actually doing in this moment? No, that's not what you're doing. What you're doing is practicing the presence of God mm. in the moment. Yeah. By whatever activity it's known as. Right. And so the yeah. 12 living in the 12 step to me means like, you know, I'm, sometimes Aaron, when I get and I do because I still struggle with extreme levels of self-doubt and depression and, and other stuff like that. And um, 
And those are the times when I specifically go back to those basic, this is how you live sober. Mm. And it's back to basics, you know, and the basics of that are I'm powerless over whatever's going on. I know what will make me sane again. So I can't, God can, I think I'll let her. That's the first three <laughs> steps. Yeah. Right. And then wh- what, what is my, what is my mining or excavation work or psycho spiritual work? Well, it all comes in 10, 11 and 12. Um, so I wanted to ask you before I, I let you off the phone here, um, what's got you hung up? What's something that you're into that's giving you life or, or uh, just something you would recommend to us to look into? Well, it feels like the time and space that this has afforded us um, has um, driven me back to my two like perennial favorite spiritual books. Okay. Um, so the and those are in case you want to know um, the first spiritual book that ever broke me open was The Prophet by Khalil Gibran. Okay. And that's um, an always a go to. And then the other one is a book, uh, and this, I'm actually supposed to be on sabbatical right now. Um, <laughs> things are not very sabbatical-y and all. Um, grumble, grumble, grumble. Uh, anyway, the other one is a book by Parker Palmer called Let Your Life Speak. Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, so revisiting perennial favorites. I'm also writing a class on the hero's journey mm. using um, The Mandalorian. Mm, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, so <laughs> so sort of like arch- the archetypal glasses are on to see how you know how archetypes everywhere. Yeah, um, and I'm uh, Michael and I have planted a vegetable garden, so we've always wanted to do that. But oh, let me tell you about a book that um, that I'm loving. It is a book called uh, One Hundred Daffodils. Okay. And the author's name is Rebecca Wynn, W-I-N-N. Mm-hmm. And it is um, a memoir in essays and about her own personal reclamation of her own soul space um, and th- through the metaphors available um, in her garden. Yeah. Wow. That's cool. It's exquisite. Um so yeah, I've, I've been, you know, uh, moving a lot of dirt and cinder blocks and all that kind of stuff. And <laughs> just the, the physicality of it um, uh, is, uh, is serving my soul very well. That's good. All right, Chris, thanks so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Hey, thanks for listening. You can find out more about Spiritual Direction and me, Aaron Maines, at my website, www.aaronmaines.com.